With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, we're a week away from the end of the World Snooker Championship. Uh, it's been an incredible tournament, I think. I mean, the World Championship is always good. We know that. You know, we're all snooker fans. But I think this year, it's just been brilliant. It's been one of the best that I can remember for, for a few years, I think. Um, now, obviously, the, 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 the last week has to live up to it. If, if it all fizzles out, then we might have to sort of reconsider what we think. But I think it's been brilliant. A lot of stories, a lot of interest, controversy. We'll get to all of that in this podcast. And I know a lot of people are tuning in saying, oh, OK, fair enough, the World Championship's been great, but we want to hear more banal meetings with snooker players. We're going to have all of that later. There are a lot of emails. It could be quite a long edition. Um, I'm recording this on the morning off. The Monday morning off. Uh, so let's just get on with it. Let's get into it. And uh, firstly, uh, we have an email here from Graham. He said, "Watching Car- and Graham has got straight to the point here. Graham, uh, you know, he's not—he's not just flimflam. He's going to sort sort an issue out here because he—he he raises an interesting point. He says, watching Karen Wilson's excellent maximum break this morning at the World Championship, I was reminded of one of your recent listeners' correspondence. They said that it seems to them that the player who makes a one-four-seven break more often than not loses the match, and they wondered if this was actually the case." The answer is no, not by a long shot. And just jumping in here, Graham has done what I what I failed to do, which is actually work it out. <laughs> He's actually taken the time to work it out, and we're grateful for that. He says, the answer is no, not by a long shot. By my count, of the 188 official maximums in competition, 140 have been in victories, 46 in defeats, one in a draw, and one in a team event, which I couldn't be bothered finding out the format or results. <laughs> well, that would have been John Higgins, I think, in the Nations Cup. Uh, anyway, he says, so approximately... 74.5% were in victories. Interestingly, this is higher than the career win percentage of all active players except for Ronnie O'Sullivan, possibly an indication that players making maximums are generally playing rather well. Further, there have been 28 or around 15% that were in the frame that secured the match, after which it would obviously be impossible to lose. This alone would make it pretty unlikely the maximum makers would have an overall losing record. I thought I would share this data in case this hasn't already been done so by one of the, your other always insightful listeners. Well, indeed, and thank you for that. And um, it does rather sort of challenge the narrative, and I was guilty of this myself because I commentated. I was very lucky to commentate on Corrin's 147, which was a fantastic break. 
Um, and I said, you know, well, it might affect his concentration, but it seems that it actually doesn't. Uh, and I suppose, in a way, that is logical, because if you've made a maximum, it, it tends to follow that you're actually playing really well. Um, of course, he won that match, and then uh, John Higgins, uh, well, completely sort of destroyed him. I mean, the next round, there's incredible performance. But anyway, thank you for that. He says, P.S., I'm very much looking forward to my first visit to the Crucible. I've been many... I've been to many a live snooker match, but never at its most hallowed arena. If I see you there, I'll endeavour to buy your pint. As a thanks for your excellent work. Well, thank you. Um, and if I see you there, I will I will call that in. He also asks, I mean, we're not here to talk about my theatre work, but he, he says that he saw the play in Edinburgh last week, not last, sorry, last summer. Are you having anything produced at this year's Fringe? The answer to that, Graham, is no. Uh, uh, yeah, it's no. <laughs> but uh, maybe next year. There's always next year and, and, uh, until there isn't. Uh, anyway, Andy Hyatt... He says, um, thank you for your wonderful podcast. I enjoy it very much, especially around this time of year. Thank you, Andy. He says, I'll be, I'll apologise in advance if my email ends up being a bit lengthy, but my situation will likely be very surprising to you and a bit sad with an exciting ending. <laughs> so Andy here has uh, set it all up very nicely. He says, first, the surprising part. I live in Canada and have been a huge snooker fan for close to 30 years, but have never attended a snooker match at any level. Believe it or not, I only ever seen a snooker table in person once. Snooker is not a very big thing in Canada and it's never on television. I've relied on streaming services when I can and anywhere else I can find coverage. Just jumping in there, Andy. I mean, this is, I think it's important to hear this because, of course, inevitably in the UK, people have been complaining about various aspects of the TV coverage, but at least there is TV coverage. You know, in some parts of the world, it's quite hard to find. And Andy, uh, thankfully, is watching on a streaming service. He said, now for the sad part, I believe it was... Uh, Sorry, in 1994, I believe it was, I was a volunteer for an organisation who support the blind and visually impaired. We were hosting a snooker exhibition with a professional player as part of a fundraising event. It was my job to be his driver for the day of the event. Being young at the time and not knowing anything at all about snooker, there was just the usual casual chit-chat about nothing really for the day that I spent with our guest. Shortly after that experience, I began to follow snooker as best I could and became a huge snooker fan and have been so ever since. I've hated myself ever since for wasting what I came to realise was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I didn't know it. The gentleman I spent the entire day with was Cliff Thorburn. Uh, I'm from Canada and I'm planning to w attend the World Championship next year, 2024. I'm incredibly excited and can't wait and want to be prepared to buy my tickets as soon as they go on sale. What I'm wondering is, what's the best strategy for planning which matches to attend? Of course, I want to see at least the, at least the day of the finals and a few sessions of the semi-finals. Hopefully, I'll be able to see some of the greats. How do the multi-table formats work in terms of being able to see different tables in the earlier rounds? I may only have four or five days and want to make the best choice possible. Any info or suggestions would be extremely helpful and much appreciated. And Andy's from, uh, uh, well, I'm going to say Kelowna, British Columbia in Canada. Well, thank you, Andy. I mean, in terms of, you, the problem in terms of knowing who you're going to see is the only player you will know for sure um, is going to be in action on a particular day will be the first day of the tournament next year. It'll be the defending champion. So whoever wins this year, they will be playing on that Saturday next year. But a after that, uh, it, it, the schedule is done, you know, pretty much last minute. So you, you wouldn't know from day to day who you would see. Um, and obviously, we don't know what the seedings are going to be. So you couldn't even work out which side of the arena certain players would be on until very near the time. So there's no real way of knowing that. Um, what I will say is, you'll enjoy it, whoever you see. <laughs> and particularly if you're at the semi-finals and final. People will be playing really well by then, and obviously, uh, you know that's going to be—it's uh, going to be a great trip. So I hope to see you there. Uh, James One writes: uh, He says, "I was at the Crucible watching a first-round match on table one when something peculiar happened. Table two had their first had their mid-session interval, and their audience got up to leave. 
Our Table 1 referee walked over to the partition and sternly instructed Table 2's crowd to leave quietly. This got me thinking, how much power does the referee have over the other table? Could they call a foul? Eject an audience member on the other side for being rowdy. Relating to this, have you ever seen an audience member call a foul? <laughs> well, <coughs> no, they can't call a foul on another, on another match. That would be, uh, pardon me, anything else, completely treading on the toes of another official. Um, it, I think, technically, a referee can ask, or a player can ask for a second opinion, and referees can consult their colleagues if they, if they feel they want to, but, I mean, obviously, a referee is in charge of that match. Um, the Crucible... It is true that you sometimes hear a referee on one side of the arena ask the crowd on the other to be quiet. Um, an audience member calling a foul... Phil Yates tells a story about someone years ago, I mean, 30-odd years ago, who was watching uh, his friend play, and uh, the other player um, was called for a foul, and the bloke in the audience stood up and shouted, and a miss! <laughs> um, but obviously, that's not legally binding as such. The referee is in charge of the match, not not the spectators. Fionn writes, uh, I've been taking note of the match stats for all the matches. I was taking them from a guy on Twitter, and most of them were screenshotted from the BBC coverage. BBC didn't put up the match stats after the Higgins v Grace match, therefore he didn't post them. I can't find the pot success, long pot success and safety success stats anywhere. I've tried places like QTracker, Snooker.org, Snooker HQ, Eurosport, BBC website, but no one's posted them. Do you know anywhere I could get these stats, or stats in the future, <coughs> if this happens again? Well... They're not publicly available is the reason. I mean, obviously, if they're put on the screen, then then they're available. But I, I think it's still Alston Elliott who do it. The, uh, the They've done it for years and years. Um, they're responsible for um, those stats. I, 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 say that, I say I think it's them. I haven't heard that it's not them. If it isn't, then I apologise to whoever it is. But I think it's still Alston Elliott. And obviously, they're, you know, they supply them for the TV coverage. It's not necessarily for um, sort of wider distribution than that. Um what I will say is next season, apparently, the, I mean, you know, we've maybe heard this before, but the World Snooker Tour sort of whole scoring system is clearly creaking, let's just put it that way, to be kind about it. Um, and apparently it's all going to be changed next season. So it's going to be a new system. And so therefore some of these stats may be available on there. Now we'll have to wait and see, but I'm told it's going to be a lot more accessible and a lot more detailed. So maybe, as I say, the thing about obviously pot success, you know, that someone has to sit there logging that. You're not going to get it for every match. Um, people, the, the people sit in that in that scanner van and they they have to log, you know, safeties and long pots and rest pots and all that stuff. It's all um, done by humans. And on that, by the way, I think I should, should credit the. Uh, I think the, the coverage has definitely moved on in terms of stats on screen. Some people may say it's overdone, but I actually like it. I'll, you know, in cricket, you get a lot of stuff put up, you know, batting averages and just, just interesting stats. And Snooker started to do that a bit more now um, within the coverage. Um, so IMG, who produced the, the World Championship coverage, I think I've done a good job with all that because, for example, I think it's good to see, you know, you have pot success for the match, but it's good to see in these multi-session matches, if it's three sessions, the pot success in, in session two compared to session one can tell you actually quite a bit. Uh, if a player's come down massively, it tells you they're struggling. Uh, or if it's gone up massively, it tells you they're improving. So I think all those things are good. Um, but in terms of how the public access, accesses it, uh, as I say, it's, it's, you know, it's not sort of designed to be publicly available apart from when it's put on the screen. Now, of course, the big story really early on in the tournament was the protest. Um, we had a chat from Just Stop Oil, um, jumped on the table during the Robert Milkins-Joe Perry match and poured orange powder over the table. 
And a woman on the other side attempted to do the same in the Mark Allen Fang Zheng Yi match. She was so slow and useless, though, that she didn't actually make it onto the table. If she had done, that would have been the end of play that evening. Uh, I was commentating on the Milkins Perry uh, match. I'll give my views on this shortly. We've had, we've had, we've not been, we've had three emails on it. We've not, not been del- deluged by it. Uh, we've got one from each side and then a final email, um, which actually does sum up what I think. But anyway, the first email is from Matt Tarrant. He says, you've been kind enough to share many of my emails answer my questions and discuss my points. I love snooker and I love the Crucible. I just bought my ticket for Thursday evening session and will catch the train from Derby. Why is my mode of transport relevant? Because I don't drive. I cycle and run most journeys and use public transport when travelling further afield so I contribute less to the climate emergency we're all facing. It appears to me most people are ignoring this crisis, so raising the issue is good. The disruption to the snooker by Monday's protest was minor and nobody was in any danger. The media coverage was huge, a great result. Emily Davison disrupted the 1913 derby and paid the ultimate price in a just cause, helping to bring women the vote. The cause of stopping the use of fossil fuels, fossil fuels is just as just, equally just. I know that my view will reflect a very small proportion of listeners to your fabulous podcast. I may be the only one, but I implore everyone to reflect. Why are we continuing to burn fossil fuels when science research clearly shows it contributes to a rise in the global temperature that is already causing significant damage to the natural habitat, to our home. What can we do as individuals to reduce or stop the burning of fossil fuels? What is more important, one frame of snooker in the first round at the Crucible or highlighting the crisis our planet is facing to a wider audience? The protests will have provoked anger and frustration, but my view is that the majority of people live in a bubble where they choose to ignore the climate emergency as it's inconvenient. I'm not sorry to see those bubbles burst. We need to wake up and fast. Well done, protesters. Love snooker. Love the planet even more. Don't worry, you won't see me on the table on Thursday. Uh, thanks for reading. I completely understand if you choose not to share. Your podcast is not a platform for political views, but this protest has provoked climate change discussion. Maybe not in Sheffield snooker bubble, where the talk will be of security and Rob Walker's vacuuming skills and the audience ovation and Fan and Alan continuing through adversity, but in the real world, where media coverage made clear what the issues the protesters were raising. What happened today was good for the planet and good for snooker. It raised the profile of both. And uh, Matt adds McGill for the title, and as we record, Anthony McGill is still going. So that's one side of it. It's fair to say, <laughs> it's fair to say, John, who's emailed in, does not agree. Uh, I'll read what John said. What I'd like to know is how these waste of life idiots got in. As like everyone else, I am led to believe you need to book tickets months and months in advance. So obviously it was planned maybe a year ago. But how did they book seats to their advantage so they could get to the table that quick? Plus, where were the security? Uh, where where they were, security was obviously slack, with no one there to tackle them. Also, how did they get that painting? Slack again. That could have been acid or anything. That poor girl refereeing must have... I'm going to clean this up, John. Must have been... I'm going to say must have been scared. It's not quite the phrase you use, but I mean, it's a family show. He said, the BBC need a kick up the arse <laughs> for leaving the cameras rolling while it was going on. They should have shut them down straight away and not give them fame and publicity. There is an odd thing to all this... If you look at the photo of the World Championship Cup above where the players sit, it looks like orange paint is flying all over it. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. Just on the... Uh, thank you, John. Just on the... Um, I thought the BBC actually did a good job. I mean, obviously, they weren't expecting it. They cut away as quickly as reasonably possible. Um, but actually, it was... You know, it was a public event and, you know, it happened. You can't pretend it didn't. Um, the sort of policy with streakers is to cut away, but you know, I think I think the director did, did a good job. He wasn't expecting what happened, um, anyway. So there are two two different views. It's fair to say. 
Uh, but uh, Marlon Solomon has written in, and he what he says is basically what I think. This is literally the wisdom wisdom of Solomon. I mean, I'm sorry to make a pun about, out of it, but there we are. Um, <clears throat> so, he says, second time emailer here. The first was about a banal, banal meeting with Sam Baird in Las Vegas. This is sadly a little more serious. I was at the Milkins Perry match on Monday evening, one of my three visits to Sheffield this year for the annual pilgrimage I book a year in advance. Something I look forward to all year and cherish when, cherish when it arrives. All round, it was a very strange and unpleasant experience being in there. It's not the football or an art gallery. People bought those tickets a year ago. Some folks may have got a hotel for their one trip to Sheffield, as it's all they could afford. They aren't going back for another match. That's it. Snooker is a niche sport. Rob Walker came out of the box, popped on his marigolds, and got on the Henry Hoover. Formula One, it is not. Listening to the many comments supporting the protest has been enlightening. It's clear that in parts of the political world which sees itself as progressive, opposing the protest is seen as a low-status opinion, while lauding the alleged bravery of the protester is very much high status. In my view, that's just another form of elitism, albeit one which believes it abhors any form of elitism. When you go to the snooker, you become part of a fraternity, the snooker family as it's called. There's a real sense of ownership that only exists within niche activities, a sport many people have seen but very few watch live that's reserved for genuine enthusiasts, many of whom save up or put a few tickets on the credit card then pay it off throughout the year, like I do. I'm lucky to have a, another couple of sessions next week, others may But as people were quick to say today on social media and elsewhere, who cares? In the grand scheme of things, the protest was a success. It's a very serious issue and really they have nothing to complain about. Another way of saying that is stop whinging plebs. Because that's what the vibe is, even though it would shame them to actually say it. The match we were watching was cancelled. While the other table started, it wasn't the same. The game slowed to a crawl, the audience slowly dwindling until a half-empty theatre was left by the end. It would be fascinating to see what the many who supported the protest, bristling as they are with the frisson frisson of sticking it to the man, would have said if they'd have been in that theatre on Monday. What would they have said if, like us, they were sat a few feet away from Robert Milkins' mum and dad? Snooker isn't like other sports. Against the odds, Milkins had earned his place at the Crucible, and before the match we were talking about how proud they looked, his mum beaming from ear to ear, glowing with pride for a son who was about to walk out. A few minutes later she looked shaken, heartbroken, we all felt for her. But who cares? What does that matter when there are much bigger things at stake? As one political activist said to me on Twitter after my extinctive anger response, I was such a disappointment to him. Another said he would have clapped the protester regardless of his, of his proximity to the player's parents. As he put it, they'll get over it. What they really mean is, know your place, plebs. I'd gone with the best mate, excited for him to see the snooker for the first time. One of the first things I prepared him for was how different it is to other sporting events. Apart from a cursory search of your bag, if you've got one, that's it, that, that, that is. Uh, people can go out to smoke any time they want and come back in. You can even wander around the Winter Gardens if you like and are allowed re-entry. It feels strange to do that in 2023. They barely even check your ticket the second time. They know your face. There's not many of us. Crucible Snooker is very, very special. It would be a real shame if that morphed into overly official security like everywhere else. And no, you can't support the protest and moan about heavy security, and there's a big overlap between those who would do both and see no contradiction. Snooker is a great choice for the protest for sure. Low security, maximum exposure. We are the ultimate soft target, an easy punchback. Those who would heap shame on dissenters to the protest, even those who are present, are engaging in a collective act of bullying. The low-status opinion that the protester was an entitled, attention-seeking Wally must be scorned with maximum derision. Their support goes to the protester instead, predictably named Edred. The high odds that 99% of the people in that theatre come from far humbler beginnings seem not to register with them. Elitism comes in many forms. P.S. It would be remiss of me not to add that Robert Milkins' parents were amazing 
Uh, once they'd shaken off the shot, they stayed and watched the other match for a few hours. If anything exemplifies why we call it a snooker family, it's that right there. Well, a passionate response from Marlon. I have to say, just to correct one thing, I mean, it's quite well documented, actually, Rob Milky's parents passed away, so they may be um, potentially his in-laws, I don't know, but uh, they can't have been his parents, I'm afraid. I mean, his mother passed away when he turned professional, um, but they may be step-parents, I don't know exactly, but obviously they, they were connected with him. So we've had a range of views there. Um, I'll tell you what I thought about it. I thought it was disgraceful. And I thought a lot of the defence of it was disgraceful. That guy had no right whatsoever to be on that snooker table. Um, here's the thing, OK? Just Stop Oil um, and this guy in particular, they depend on public donations. They, these two protesters had Century Club tickets. They had hospitality tickets. They spent an hour in hospitality before play began, very happily enjoying themselves. That costs hundreds of pounds, okay? And that money has come from the public. And I would say a pretty gullible public, actually. Um, they could have sat anywhere in that theatre and still made a protest. But they chose to spend an hour in hospitality beforehand, enjoying themselves, enjoying the experience, before they attempted to ruin the experience for everyone else. The problem is we, we live in a very binary world. It's You either have to think one thing or another. And the truth is more nuanced. There'll be a lot of people in that theatre on Monday night who actually passionately care about the environment and believe in, you know, the, the whole business of fossil fuels and all that. But actually, they also want to watch snooker. You don't have to be in one camp or the other. It's a public entertainment. And a lot of people who said, oh, well, no one was harmed and all this. Well, no one was physically harmed, but a lot of people were... And, and people who sort of are not visible in the first place were put to a lot of extra work and hassle because of this. I'm talking about the crucible cleaners who had to come in uh, from home to work through the night to get all the dust off the carpet and clean the place up to keep the building open because the table fitters had to move in and recover the table. That took until the middle of the night. These people are already overworked, you know, but they had to come in. Other people had to be uh, inconvenienced. Now, there'll be people saying, well, you know, the planet's more important. Yes, but <laughs> of course, the future of the planet is important, but they don't see the way that this inconvenienced the little people, as it were. And this is Carlin Marlin's point. There's a there's this sort of high-minded attitude a lot of people have had. Well, you know, these protests were more important than a snooker match. Well, most things are more important than a snooker match, but the fact is a lot of people enjoy watching snooker. They paid a lot of money, and we're in a cost-of-living crisis. They paid a lot of money to come and see a public entertainment. It's not like the suffragettes. The suffragettes did not have the vote, okay? They they were unable to participate in the democratic process because they didn't have the vote. There is a lot of ways that uh, these protests can can happen without massively inconveniencing people. For years outside the crucible, there was a guy, I think his name was Stuart. Uh, that's not important, but he was an anti-smoking protester. He stood out there for years uh, and he would speak to people and, you know, shout his sort of message but he wasn't stopping anyone enjoying the snooker. He was saying, because obviously we were sponsored by Embassy in those days and a lot of tobacco companies were sponsoring tournaments, he would stand outside and he would make his point, but he wouldn't stop other people enjoying what they were doing. He would try and persuade them, uh, you know, and, and eventually you know, tobacco did go. I'm not saying it's because of him, obviously, <laughs> but, he, but he was part of a protest. But, that, of course, that was before social media. The point of this protest was for publicity, and it worked. It was a great success uh, on, on, on that basis. But to go back to the point, I think Matt said, you know, one frame of snooker. It wasn't one frame of snooker. If this protest had worked, there wouldn't have been any snooker that night. There wouldn't have been any snooker sh uh, played because the other table would have had to have stopped as well. Um, so actually you're talking about an entire evening 
that would be ruined for everybody. Uh, and I don't think that's acceptable. Um, there is such a thing as democratic consent. And most people in that building wanted to watch snooker. So I think the protest was undemocratic. It went against what everybody wanted. Um, and I think that's actually quite a serious point to make. You know, it, it was it was unwelcome. Now, OK, you know, these people believe in their cause. I'm not saying they don't. Um, but it's got nothing to do with the World Snooker Championship. It, Formula One, there's, there's more of a, certainly more of a kind of case to be made because they're literally driving around in cars. The Grand National protest by um, animal rights protesters made some sort of sense because obviously that involves animals. But this was just targeting a high-profile event because it, they knew they, they would get publicity for it. And they did. It worked. I'm not saying it didn't. But um, it also ruined the evening for a lot of people. And my other point is this. We've heard people say... Oh, well, you know, protest is important. But what they mean is protest is important when it's a cause they believe in. Let's just imagine that this was an, let's say, an anti-abortion protest or anti-same-sex marriage or anti-immigration. A member of the far right got on the table, send all the immigrants home. Would the people who were defending last week's protest be defending that? If not, they're hypocrites, aren't they? I thought you believed in protest. Or do you just believe in protest when it's a cause you believe in? There is This is the hypocrisy of progressive politics and... I'm from the progressive side of politics, but you, re you see it all the time. When people defended the protest, they, they talk about the principle of protest, but what they mean is they believe in this cause. Had it been a cause they didn't believe in, they'd have condemned it. <laughs> and, and so by that, by that token, tomorrow, if someone wants to get up and protest about abortion, they can do it, can they? Because you believe in protest. Let's have one every day. There's so many sessions. Let's have a protest every day for a different cause. And everyone can defend it because protest is important. Alternatively, leave the World Snooker Championship alone. It's done nothing to you. It brings pr pleasure to millions of people. Let us play the tournament, OK? You can make whatever points you want in a democratic society, but let people enjoy the entertainment that's been put on. A couple of weeks after the championship, I'm going to the National Theatre. Can I get on the stage because I, you know, and stop the evening because I believe in something? I don't see why I should be able to. Um, I don't agree with what happened. I thought it was, it was a nasty thing to do, and... OK, work from their perspective, they got publicity, but I'm not sure how many people they converted to their cause. I'm not, you know, I'd be surprised if many people changed their minds about the situation. And as I say, there'd be people in the crucible that night who believed passionately in the environment, but actually wanted to watch snooker as well. Um, and they were, they were prevented from doing that. In terms of security, I'm not really sure what more could have been done. Um, you know, we're talking about a small bag of powder now, unless you literally go through every single, you know, corner of everyone's bag and everything. It's going to be very hard to find all these things. I'm sure these people could have smuggled in the powder, you know, some other way, literally up the jumper or something, you know. Um, but it has had a knock-on effect, you know, the, the security has been tightened um, because obviously if something like this can happen, then maybe something more serious can happen as well. I thought it was just a shame that it happened. And, um, you know, we've we've expressed both sides on the podcast, but my view was it was not. Um, something we want to see again there because as I say there's so many people can say X is more important than snooker if this subject is more important to you than snooker you can come and disrupt it you know and as I say it could literally happen every day um, and I suspect if it did then the people defending the protest probably wouldn't be quite so in favour of it now on to friendlier things Richard Colley said I went to the Crucible on the first day 15th of April things that were great the staff were friendly and excellent I was kept up to date well by emails from World Snooker Tour, Sheffield Theatres, prior to arrival, as to what to expect. 
For example, I was sent another copy of the e-tickets and a link to pre-order food and drinks during the interval. This worked well and saved time. The view in the venue was magnificent. Everything looked so much smaller than on the TV. Well, everyone says that, Richard, and you're quite right. I mean, that's the first thing everybody says. He says it's so small. In my mind, it looks like they're playing on a 6 by 3 foot rather than the reality of a 12 by 6 Things that were not so good. The merchandise stand was shut too early in the evening and my friend was not allowed back in to purchase the next day, uh, having it been closed midway into the evening session the week before. I even offered to them to keep me hostage while my friend uh, was assisted by security to buy the merchandise she wished. It was not allowed. I felt they didn't want to help and if they really wanted to help, they would have made it possible. I was quite happy for them to be given the money up front and wait outside for the merchandise. The bag searches were not thorough and they only asked what I had in there and if I had any glass bottles. Well, that's a little, maybe a little window into what happened with the protest then in that case. He said, other good things. I'm glad to say I passed you on the way down Norfolk Street. But we both looked in a rush, so I didn't want to disturb you. Uh, well, actually, Richard, I have to say you didn't because I wasn't there last week. I'll be there for the semi-finals onwards. So whoever that was, and, you know, you, already people are feeling sorry for them. It wasn't me. Uh, all in all, I had a good time, but my friend was most disappointed not to be able to get the merchandise she wished. It was a first and possibly only time. Rob Walker is as wonderful, uh, like yourself, a truly amazing person. So thank you very much for all you do for snooker. Uh, and then he said, I don't, this last line, I'm disappointed to see, I can't be found, can't be found only at WST. I, I, sorry, I don't, I think the last sentence is missing a few words. Anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed your trip. And uh, I'm yet to meet anyone who goes to the Crucible who doesn't actually enjoy the experience. Sean O'Donnell. Here from Dundas, Ontario, in Canada. I wrote to you once about my experience with Bob Chaperon. I love the job you do. Uh, I've become a fan of your commentary as well. Live snooker is notoriously difficult to find here in Canada, but I've had a revelation finding the Matchroom live feed. It's only $6, quite a bargain. As I'm sitting here watching the final frame of the morning between David Grace and John Higgins, I'm kind of stunned that I see absolutely no chalk marks on the table. I also realise I haven't seen a player ask the referee to clean a ball. It's quite a difference from even a few years ago. It seems that the new chalk has changed the game for the better. Well, there's certainly uh, fewer kicks. You're right, Sean, and that's, that can only be a good thing. Uh, I've got a few. I mean, there's still a few players who use the old chalk, but, I mean, you know, I think most people would agree this new chalk has, has made a difference. I've had a couple of, <coughs> excuse me, a couple of emails about the pockets. Duncan says, I'd say it's an excellent world championship so far, but, dear me, are these the biggest cut of pockets ever? Uh, I would say no to that, actually. Um... Uh, 2009, Stephen Hendry made a maximum. There was one ball he potted in that which, you know, suggested the pockets were on the large side. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Um, and certainly if you go back in the 1980s, you know, they were just factually correct to say they were bigger. The templates were different. Um, Simon Biggin on this topic says, Regarding the pocket size debate, the pops of every few tournaments, this one being no exception, there's been a few this week which were suspect, but John Higgins along the top cushion... That was a black, I think. Uh, surely takes the biscuit. Like Neil Fault said in commentary, that had no right to go in. I think there must be a broad tolerance when templating the pockets in what one table fitted deems fitted against what another fitter deems fitted. The cushion rubber around where the template sits has some give being made of rubber and will vary on what each fitter deems tight. When experts, players and pundits notice the inconsistencies, all we get from WST is that the template is exactly the same for every table, for every comp. Could you invite a qualified table fitter onto the podcast? tell us why inconsistencies arise or ask a fitter and report back. I feel they never get to defend themselves against this and it would be really interesting to hear their take. Well, it's a good point, Simon. I'll try and do that uh, maybe next season, but um, I'm going to defend the table fitters because I think they do a great job. Um, 
it's certainly true though obviously you're right when you say every fitter is is different and has has um like you say maybe a different um idea of how table runs uh, it seems to me there's no doubt though the at the black end those the, the sort of what we know as the top corner pockets they do seem to be playing generously the middles are still pretty brutal i think i don't think anyone would say they're easy and actually the, the bulk pockets don't, don't seem to be pretty easy we've seen a lot of balls missed into the bulk corners actually um, so the, they, they seem to be playing. I mean, they're obviously they're supposed to be all the same size, but they do seem to be playing differently. I spoke to Dominic Dell about this. He's convinced it's the cloth rather than the actual pockets not being the right size. Of course, obviously they're templated. Um, you know, these are professionals who do this job, so they're templated. But some balls seem to be going in easily. Other balls in other pockets seem to be being missed. So uh, what I will say is, we're, on the century, we're, we're quite quite a way behind the last couple of years. We've had. As we start today, the last day of the second round, we're on 62. Last year in rounds one and two, we had 78 and uh, roughly the same the year before. So we're uh, let's say we get three today. We're still quite a way behind. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there are certain pots that are pretty glaring. That's the thing. Um, but, you know, we've seen a lot missed as well. And, and if you look at some of the players we've lost in this tournament, Neil Robertson, Judd Trump, Sean Murphy, great potters, great builders, you know... That tells you the pockets, um, you know, for them weren't big enough because they all got beat. So um, it, it, it's, I think that the inconsistency is the thing, isn't it, that people notice. That's that's the thing. I don't think anyone genuinely thinks the pockets have been opened up deliberately, but they do seem to be playing in an inconsistent way, and that may be down to different table fitters. We'll try and we'll try and look into that at a later date. Andrew Morrison, can someone clarify something for me, please? I totally understand what a push shot is. But I see so many shots where someone just drops into the pack of reds, usually at the start of a frame. But regardless, if it's not a touching ball and a player plays his shot, usually back up to bulk, say really thin off a red, the white is close to. If you look at those shots in slow motion, it looks like the tip, the white and the red are all in contact with each other at the same time. But a push shot is never called. Well, um, I suppose the answer to that is it may look like they are, but I guess they're not. Otherwise, the push shot would be called. I mean, the referees, you know... I'm right on the case. The players can feel a push shot as well. So uh, it can be difficult to ascertain, but uh, I guess the answer is they're not push shots, <laughs> really. Uh, James Howard, uh, after watching and enjoying the opening day and yours and Discovery Plus's excellent coverage, I could not help but be bothered by something. Just how terrible they've made the set look. Who on earth thought grey is a good colour to have? The whole set looks dreadful. Now, whilst you might suggest, why does it matter? Uh, the answer is it doesn't in the main. I will continue to watch and enjoy the snooker regardless. However, the look and, ve- and venue clearly matters, or else it may as well be played in a warehouse. How I long for the reds and scarlets of years gone by, and even the flowers decorating the set of the Masters. Surely they could have come up with something a little more aesthetically pleasing. Please don't think me to be one of those people who moan about everything on Twitter. I don't have it. I'm just a fan who wants the best for our game. Yeah, I mean, it, James, you have a point. It looks a bit drab. I think, though, you wrote this on day one of the tournament. I suspect you've probably been enjoying the event. You've probably got used to it. Um, Grey, it's not the best colour, is it, really? Um, you know, you like to think that they could have come up with something a bit better, but um, but the snooker's been good. Maybe that's why that, that guy with the orange powder thought he wanted to sort of just decorate it a bit. Maybe that was the real reason behind the protest. But there'll be people out there saying, yes, OK, the protest, the pocket sizes, you know, the push shots, all that stuff. That's all very well. But the real reason we're tuning in 
is to hear about more banal meetings with snooker players. And we've got, we had plenty on this. If you, if you're new to the podcast, we've had people writing in. And the, the rules really are that nothing of any importance is discussed. It's all just very small, prosaic, and ultimately forgettable, except that people haven't forgotten because they've written in. Hayden Patworth, another first time emailer here. I love the podcast. I have a banal story involving Judd Trump and a lookalike. Oh, <laughs> all the ingredients are here, aren't they? He says, I was at a driving range and I saw a face I thought was familiar. After trying to work out where I knew him from, I realised from seeing him on the TV occasionally, it was Jack Trump, the lookalike I'd recognised was Judd's brother. After realising it was Jack, I peered around the corner to see if his brother was with him, and sure enough, he was. Similar to the Rob Milken story a couple of episodes ago, I didn't want to bother him, so I didn't actually speak to him. I know you don't condone this, but I've attached a photo where he appears in the background, and sure enough, <laughs> Hayden's photo, uh, does, there's, there's Judd in the background, minding his own business, little knowing that this will be an anecdote on a podcast. Andrew McCulloch, I've only been listening for a year or so, but the podcast has quickly become a highlight of the week, and he's the best podcast I listen to. Yeah. What? One in the eye for Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode there. He says, uh, I'm about to head off to the Crucible this morning for the opening day's matches, but thought I had to share some low-level snooker player encounters from last night in the spirit of recent email contributions. So this is this is torn from today's headlines. He's actually in Sheffield this year. He says, leaving our hotel last night, we saw Bobby, Joy- Bobby George waiting in the foyer. Not snooker, but a reasonable start. Now, people will be saying, who's Bobby George? He was a, a very well-known darts player of years gone by. He says, on exiting our taxi, we walked past Sean Murphy getting his photo taken with a fan outside his hotel. Straight to dinner, and I was sat down and spotted Ken Doherty and Dennis Taylor, possibly a couple of others, but the view was obscured. They were soon joined by Stephen Hendry, recognisable from those black shoes and white soles he always wears. Also from the fact it was Stephen Hendry. That was plenty for me, but then ten minutes later in walks Mark Williams, Lee Walker, Mark's wife and their son, Kian, I think. They were sat at the table beside us. I struggled to hear much of what was said, nor would I condone eavesdropping, but I did hear Mark ask um, I did hear Mark ask if Lee had ever tried the Chateaubriand meat. <laughs> it's terrific detail. He said I didn't bother anyone as they were at dinner, but it was a brilliant way to start my few days in Sheffield. A lot there's a lot to digest there, literally it seems as they were at dinner. Anyway, James Cook our friend in America, he says, I'm back from in New York after another impromptu visit to Florida where the weather did me a favour and, and rained so I could sit inside without guilt and watch Judgment Days 1 and 2. It was superb flitting round the tables with you, Ken and Rob, the Duracell Bunny Walker, providing the soundtrack to what was a very tasty amuse-bouche for what was to unfold over the la- next 17 days to come. I think that's the first u- use of amuse-bouche on this podcast and... A lot of people say, let's hope the last. Anyway, he says, on the plane ride back tonight in the middle seat, sandwiched between two people with, let's just say, different political views to mine, I made the sensible choice to put in my AirPods and catch up on snooker-related podcasts. Top of the list, of course, was the Snooker Scene podcast. I chose to listen to the Midweek Sports special episode, which as ever was thoroughly enjoyable. After hearing again about Sean Murphy's triple crown achievement of the 1479 data and hole in one, I was going to say I've done the same. I've hit a hole in one at Crazy Golf, I've done a nine data playing 101. I've potted a red, then a brown and black at snooker to complete the 147 clearance, with the opponent potting in between balls. Anyway, to finally get to the point, I've a random, uh, I've a random snooker player thing. Many years ago, I met Cliff Thorburn, and we stayed in touch via all things LinkedIn. Anyway, it turns out Cliff shares a birthday with my wife, January the 16th, and he's wished her a happy birthday via LinkedIn messages. <laughs> Quite a small thing, this, isn't it? He says, I hereby challenge any of your listeners to be more niche than that. Well, it's good of Cliff to do that. Um, and, of course, yesterday was the uh, 14th anniversary of Maximum. Matt Parker. I was fortunate enough to attend Peter Ebden's first wedding reception, and that's the story I tell friends 
whereas actually I work behind the bar. <laughs> I also served Peter at his local HMV. Sadly, he wasn't buying his single. In other snooker players in your workplace stories, I saw Sean Murphy in the children's department of Next. He looked bored. Further to this, my brother met Jimmy White at the Argus head office for their latest catalogue launch, which included some whirlwind-endorsed hat. These are Matt's words, not mine. Uh, he says Jimmy was very much the worse for wear, having been flown in directly from Spain for the occasion, after what was, what was clearly a rather big night. Well, maybe he needed a drink to get through the Argus catalogue launch, which I mean, I'm not, nothing against the, the good people at Argus, but it doesn't sound like the society event of the year, does it? Anyway, but uh, that's, uh, that's Jimmy at the Argus catalogue launch. Bobby Kenny, first off, many thanks for the podcast. Delighted to have discovered it a few months ago. I take, partic- <laughs> I take particular delight in your rants aimed at the communists and freeloaders who fail to understand that the professional sport could only exist when people agree to pay for it. Speaking of freeloaders, have you considered some way of monetizing the podcast? Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> communists and freeloaders, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. We do have adverts at the start, you may have noticed. Um, I'm not going to retire off them, but you know, they, it, it, it's, it'll, it'll buy a drink. <laughs> it'll buy a drink in the graduate. Anyway, the correspondence from the 10th of April concerning a slight interaction with Steve Davis reminded me of a similar experience from my own repertoire. The poker boom of the noughties saw every man and his dog try their hand at Texas Hold'em. Snooker players, it seems, were no exception. I myself took part in a poker tournament at the City West Hotel in Dublin in January 2006. Midway through the tournament, I'd just been moved to a new table when none other than the Nugget himself immediately sat to my left. Within a few hands, I became embroiled in a hand with the former world champion. I'd just opened for a large bet with a pair of nines. To my horror, Davis quickly declared himself all in. I stewed over the decision for a few minutes. The snooker legend was impassive. His features set like granite. In the end, with great reluctance, I folded my hand. Realising how much it pained me, Steve showed undue mercy by turning over his hand to reveal a pair of queens. I nodded in appreciation of this gesture, and Steve returned the nod. There were no words exchanged, and yet I was left with a lasting impression of Steve the Gentleman, Steve the Merciful. Back to snooker. I'm heading to my first ever match on April the 24th. Well, this is today, as I record it, actually. He says, at the hallowed ground of the Crucible Theatre. I have a question about playing at the Crucible. How's it decided which match is on which table? Is it simply the match from the top of the draw goes on table one, and the match from the bottom is played on table two? That's exactly what it is, actually, um, Bobby. Yes, that, that is it. And table one is not the more important table. You know, it's not it's not centre court, it's a number one court. It's just what they call the table as, as the players walk in on the right hand side. So the top of the draw where Ronnie O'Sullivan is is table one, and the bottom of the draw is Mark Allen and, and, and Jack Jones and those people. That's table two, and that's all it is basically. Lucy Dodsworth. I'm writing to say about something that happened to my twin sister, Kate. Kate is just as much of a snooker fan as I am, but not a listener to your podcast, mainly due to her not doing as much driving as me. Oh, don't tell our friends from uh, <laughs> Just Stop Oil, they'll, they'll be after you. That's the other thing about that protest, by the way. I don't have gone about this again, but if if you can protest at a public event like that, why not at someone's wedding or someone's funeral or, or a children's play at school or just go around someone's house and tip powder over them? Um, anyway, he says, uh, I'm writing to, uh, Major, not as driving as me. So, this is Lucy's email. By writing you this email, I think I've reduced even further the niche of this feature to banal meetings through banal sightings to now banal reports of other people's sightings of snooker players. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, this is getting smaller, and that's a good, that's a good thing. She says, several weeks ago, I let Kate know about your exciting new feature, banal meetings with snooker players. She replied, well, he could have my Karen Wilson story, but we didn't speak, so it won't be interesting enough. At the time, I agreed with her. However, after catching up on the latest episode, I think the time of this anecdote may well have come. Kate went to this year's UK Championship in York and purchased a plastic beaker of sweets at the mid-session interval. 
She then got slightly lost on the way back to her seat and ended up in a backstage corridor. Struggling to coordinate opening doors and carrying the suites, she came across Karen Wilson, who held the door open for her and pointed in the direction of the arena. Kate smiled and nodded her thanks to Karen. Karen smiled back. She's convinced the smile conveyed recognition of Kate's efforts to keep noise to a minimum by purchasing a beaker rather than bringing in a rusty packet of sweets. She may well have read too much into it. In any event, mere eye contact with Karen made Kate's day and confirmed her assessment of Karen as a lovely young man. Many thanks for your commitment to the podcast. Listening genuinely cheers me up every week. Well, thank you. And uh, Karen is a lovely young man. I think we can agree with that. Um, he took that defeat yesterday to Higgins very well, considering it was a complete drubbing. Um, so anyway, it's nice to hear that he was... Uh, that the, uh, no words were exchanged, but the, the, look at, the, the, the look between them tells you that you know he recognised her... Uh, her mercy in bringing in a beaker, as you say, rather than one of those bags that the, the audience are always told to, to keep quiet. We've got plenty more on this. Liam McMullen, a few years ago, I moved to Stroud in Gloucestershire. One afternoon, I was in the post office and was embroiled in a debate with the clerk about whether the paint I was trying to return was water, solvent or oil-based and therefore could be posted. Now, this is, this is uh, you know, the, the great screenwriters of our time, you know, should be across this. This sounds like an extraordinary drama. Anyway... Liam says, after a few minutes of deliberation, searching online and looking through raw mail regulations, I heard an unmistakable voice from the world of snooker, speaking to the teller next to me. I thought, goodness me, that person sounds just like Dominic Dale. And lo and behold, when I glanced to my right, Dominic Dale was arranging a box of something old-sounding to be posted somewhere. I was so distracted by realising who I was stood next to that I almost didn't hear the teller assure me it was OK to send my paint. I'd only just moved at this point, and this was before I knew the spaceman lived in Stroud, and since then I often see him about the town. But this is by far the strangest and most out-of-context encounter I've had. To hear his fantastic tones I'm so used to enjoying from snooker-related interviews whenever he's doing the commentary, instead beside me discussing which class to send a package. <laughs> we move on. Daniel O'Connell. I was walking in Epping Forest with my wife one day when a group of joggers approached us on the pathway. I was stopped suddenly in my tracks when it became clear to me that one of the figures was instantly recognisable. Clinging onto my wife's arm and interrupting her with no regard, I declared with total authority, that's Ronnie O'Sullivan. Knowing Ronnie's passion for running as I do and being part of the world as we are, I must have, on some subconscious level, prepared myself for this eventuality because with no time at all to react, a serenity washed over me. I knew exactly what I had to do. Ronnie, I shouted at the top of my voice, startling all of the many, startling all of the many dog walkers and pram pushers within earshot. He looked surprised himself. The adrenaline coursing through my veins had pushed the decibel level well beyond acceptable. For a heart-stopping second, the earth stood still. Mercifully, I got a wry smile and a thumbs up as he carried on about his business. I turned to my wife, who had the look of someone who might have just encountered an alien life form, and glowing with pride, I said, it's Ronnie, I had to. To describe this amount of character would be an understatement of some proportion. Ronnie will never know this, but I now consider him to be a close and personal friend. I think that's a reasonable uh, conclusion to draw from that. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Now, Dean, Dean Newt, I'm going to say. Uh, I'm loving your listeners' encounters with our snooker heroes. I've lived in Perth, Western Australia, since 1984. However, as a young apprentice diamond polisher, I lived in Johannesburg during the early 80s. My place of work was across the road from a snooker club, owned by a South African pro named Derek Maini, I'm going to say that is. Uh, after, every day after work and every Saturday, I'd be straight in there. It was always super busy, and a lot of South African professionals would rock up. It was no surprise to see Silvino and Peter Francisco, Jimmy Van Rensburg, a really nice bloke, and Perry Manns practising there. Around 1982-83, there was an exhibition series involving Willie Thorne, Dennis Taylor, and I think Tony Knowles, to play against the South African pros. So I was in there after work as usual. 
and there was Willie Thorne practising alone. I was sitting at the bar watching him with a beer, and he wandered over and we got chatting. I told him I was a regular there. Uh, after a while, he told me he was knackered and asked me if, I'd, if I would drop him off at his hotel. So, I dro- as I drove him, he told me he needed the next day to get some proper practice in. I offered to pick him up in the morning and take him to the club. So next morning, he was there waiting for me. I jumped in, the, jumped in the car and went back to the club. Once there, Willie asked me if I wanted to have a hit. Would I? I explained that I was crap and had never made a break over 50 at that stage. And he was cool with that. So for maybe the next six or seven hours, we played, but to his rules. He asked me to open the reds at every chance. And as soon as either of us missed... He never had to wait long for me to miss. We'd re-rack and it instantly became clear to me that all he was doing was chasing a maximum. If he was on 24 or 32 and missed, he'd just say, Dean, wrap them up and break off. My job was to break off every frame and keep the black back to back on its spot. It was an amazing day and he never made a 147, although he did make a couple of centuries, all blacks before missing that, even, that evening. I dropped him back at the hotel and he shouted me dinner and gave me tickets to the exhibition matches that week. So that's my Willie Thorne story. He was a lovely man. Yes, I mean, that's, he, you've sort of some Willie up there. Um, a lot of people who practiced with him said he would do that and uh, no surprise that he, uh, he was good company. Paul Tibble. I've been lucky enough to have two meetings with snooker players. Neil Foles was my first meeting. This was during the summer at Ascot at Ascot Car Boot about 15 years ago. Who says you need to dine at the Ritz to meet some of the stars? I was brave enough to ask to shake his hand and comment on a shot I'd seen him play many years before at the Crucible. He was very gracious but said he didn't remember the shot I mentioned. I thought it was a deep screw from Bulk on a red over a bottom pocket back into Bulk for safety. I've looked for this shot on the very reliable YouTube and have still to find it, so obviously he was right and I was mistaken. But it was nice to meet him. He's as, 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 he's as genuine in person as he portrays on TV. My other encounter was before a Chinese event, which escapes me now. At the time, I was a barista working at Heathrow Airport. Whilst working on the coffee machine, no other than Jimmy White was in front of me. Now, Jimmy, I have to say, appears in a lot of these stories. Anyway, uh, I can't remember when this was. Uh, it was before the restrictions on carrying the cues directly onto the plane, and I remember him having it in his hand. No cue case or anything. It was like he was mid-frame and waiting for his turn. If memory serves, he had a cappuccino with chocolate dusting on top. Yeah, these are very important details. I like the idea of Jimmy just walking around with his cue, and <laughs> maybe just in case there's a, there's a match somewhere. Anyway, he says, strange and probably weird enough to get a mention on the pod, which continues to go from strength to strength, despite his lack of planning. <laughs> you rarely fail to make to make a smirk on my face at some stage during the pod. On a side note, I have a theory on how the rankings could be changed, but I'll save that for when the topic is popular again. Well, that's very good of you. Uh, Sam Cole... I was going to email him with some some uneventful snooker player sightings, including a silent short-range head nod from Ricky Walden in the car park at the first champion of champions in commentary after he lost 4-0 to Stuart Bingham, and neither of us knew what to say, or having breakfast at a Premier Inn in Manchester on the next table to Ding Junhui and Tianpeng Fei without being brave enough to say a word to them. But last Wednesday topped the lot. My partner and I were fortunate enough to bump into Jimmy White, here he is again, <laughs> who I can exclusively reveal was buying his lunch in Greg's. We waited outside for him, and he was as legendary as expected and duly obliged selfies with us. This is not the, the uneventful part. The following day, we were walking to Sheffield train station to travel to Medihall, when my partner said, wouldn't it be funny if we saw Jimmy outside Greg's again? Sure enough, we saw him in exactly the same place, but this time he was carrying nothing but two lemons in one hand. We didn't have the courage to bother him again, uh, but, but this has been on my mind ever since. I'd be eternally grateful if you could find out why Jimmy White would be walking around Sheffield City Centre at 10am on a Wednesday morning with two lemons. I don't think I can rest until I know the answer. A few minutes later, when we reached the station, we were fortunate enough to bump into Anthony McGill, who I was surprised to see waiting for a train to go shopping in Menor Hall, as it was only a few hours before the second session of his match with Judd Trump. 
No, no unusual citrus stories here. Just a very pleasant person, as expected. I'm sure everyone's focus is on the actual snooker being played right now, but all I can think is, surely Eurosport has someone else to send out for lemons other than Jimmy White. <laughs> well, you know, there's a big crew working on the snooker. I don't think we have a lemon expert on there. Um, I think if you want if you want lemons, you've got to uh, get your own. All I would say is Jimmy is the sort of perfect encapsulation of that, that old phrase, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You know, he turns anything really into a positive and uh, it sounds like he was literally doing it there I'll have to try and find out the answer to that because clearly he's keeping up at night but uh, anyone else who's seen players this could be a new feature have you seen players holding fruit in public spaces <laughs> I suspect we won't get much on that but you know if you've seen I don't know John Dunning holding a lime let us know uh, anyway Sam Martin I was in Edinburgh airport in February with a few friends having a coffee getting ready to board our flight to Berlin when a friend pointed out that John Higgins was sitting behind me a big fan of John, I quickly turned round and noticed it wasn't just John, but Stephen Maguire and Anthony McGill were also sitting there having a coffee. I plucked up the courage and went around and said hello and asked if I could get a photo. The fourth member of their party, an old and bald man, said, Sure, son, do you want these three in the picture as well? I sat down and got my photo and was all smiles. Apart from Anthony McGill, who I assume thought I didn't know who he was and he didn't look at the camera or interact during my brief conversation with Higgins and Maguire, this was around a decade ago and Anthony would have been a lesser name. OK, well, he may be world champion in a week's time. Uh, that photo could be worth a lot of money. Uh, <coughs> Chris Boyle, many thanks for the... Now, we're off the subject now. We've got two more emails. Um, so, Chris Boyle, many thanks for the podcast. Always an insightful, fair and wry listen. My eight-year-old son, Finley, has started taking an interest in this year's world championship, asking lots of questions as he gets to grips with the rules and nuances of the game. One thing he found particularly odd was why they put the number 11 on the balls. This stumped me initially until we realised he meant the reflection from the overhead lights. Anyway, while I appreciate the, the need to attract new fans and audiences, and I'm not averse to innovation per se, I also think that snooker folks should have confidence in the natural drama, incredible skill and varying characters of the competitors to both entice and retain the audiences. While not blind to the current issues, I'd also go so far as to say that the unique charms of snooker and its distinctive differences make it an antidote to many of the annoyances of other sports and entertainment more broadly. And it's a great point, Chris, actually, because I think we don't recognise enough sometimes what we have. There's so much discussion about what we could have, what we should have, what we might have. But what we do have, I think, sometimes goes under the radar. And you're absolutely right. There is a charm to snooker. You know, we know it's a rather strange business. You know, <laughs> it's a strange game. It's an eccentric world. But that's good, isn't it? It's something that's worth preserving, I think, worth protecting. Anyway, thank you for your email. I'm glad your son is getting into snooker. Our final email this week is from Jennifer Best. We're literally saving the best till last. Now, you might think I planned that as a joke. It just occurred to me. Um, so anyway, Jennifer says, I was listening to this week's podcast and found myself in the unusual position of disagreeing with you on a couple of responses to some of the correspondence. One of them I'm not that bothered about, but the other one I feel quite strongly about, so I thought I would share my perspective. One of your correspondents put forward an idea that there should be a weekly shootout-style tournament, which you disagreed with, as you think the novelty would wear off and the traditional format of the game should be showcased. I get your concerns about the novelty wearing off, but I think the correspondent is absolutely right about the shootout being used to attract a new audience. I'm a big fan of the tournaments that tweak the format and firmly believe they could be a gateway drug for people who otherwise find snooker impenetrable. Obviously, one of snooker's biggest challenges is attracting a more diverse audience, and I think these events can do that. You just have to look at the audience at Judgment Day to see the problem. At a guess, the audiences were about 95% white men, mostly of a mature vintage. This is during the Easter holidays. Where are the families? Where are the women? I'll tell you, not at the snooker, because it's not a welcoming environment, especially when Will Snooker Tour issue a video 
with Sean Murphy basically telling audiences to sit down and shut up. Maybe World Snooker Tour should offer nappies and gags as well as radios. Now, don't get me wrong, my personal preference is to sit in silence, but it's just not for everyone. I think there definitely needs to be space for tournaments with a more relaxed atmosphere to hook people in, particularly families, who can then graduate to the hard stuff. To use a comparison, I'm a big music fan and I think I know my onions when it comes to classical music. If a friend expressed an interest in listening to some classical music, I would suggest they wire into Wagner's Rings cycle. I tell them to listen to Classic FM, find out what they like and take it from there. If they stick to Classic FM, that's great. If they want to delve deeper, that's also great. Either way, it's still one person listening who wasn't listening before. And to me, snooker's the same. I agree with you about overexposing the shootout formats, so weekly would be too much. But have one or maybe two a year and take it to different places each year. Take it to some of the bigger cities, promote it as a family event and hook a new audience in. For what it's worth, my ideal tournament would be a mashup of the Championship League and the shootout. So basically the shootout with a round-robin stage so that no poor player has to go home after playing one frame. The group stages could be spread through the calendar at different venues with the final later in the season. I know it's not going to happen, but I can dream. To end on a positive note, I'm totally in agreement with you on your positivity drive. I've really enjoyed the coverage of the qualifiers, especially with the trivia. I think it's possibly my favourite event of the year, and I'm thinking I might go along to Judgment Day next year. If nothing else, I'll make the audience slightly this male, although I doubt I'll lower the average age much. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Very considered uh, view. Here's the thing about the, the, where the shootout could change, potentially. It, isn't, it may not be about having more of them, but it's very. Cl- it's always been the same. It's very clearly modelled at a sort of dance environment. And basically, the idea is people get drunk and shout out. Now, it doesn't have to be like that, actually. It could be more family-orientated. It could be the fun aspect of it could be maybe highlighted more rather than this sort of... It, it, it's not an environment for everybody, the shootout. You know, it, it is a little bit sort of dartsy, and not everyone likes that. So maybe that's something that could be uh, looked at. I, I was amused by your comment about the the, um, the World Snooker Tour video with Sean. Um, I think they were just trying to sort of tell people... Um, how to behave, but you know, you've interpreted that as being basically, you know, you've got to come along and not enjoy yourself, and that that is a shame. There's definitely um, a bit of a perception, I think, with some snooker that it's very serious, and you know, you've got to sort of essentially just sit in silence all day, um, and that obviously doesn't appeal to everybody. So, you know, your views are well made. I still say um, that if you have too much of the shootout, it could be too much of a good thing. I think four days works, but maybe. They could look to just change the environment a little bit and and make it less sort of dependent on people getting drunk and barracking. You know, that's I think we could move on a little bit from that maybe. Uh, anyway, we've been going for an hour and um, I'm sure people have, have had enough by now. So that's it. Until next week, I'll be back um, after the tournament. Uh, we don't know who's going to win. Mark Selby was my tip. He's still going. I do like the look of Mark Allen, but Ronnie O'Sullivan is still going. John Higgins is still going. Here's the thing about the Crucible. Okay, it sorts people out. You know, O'Sullivan and Higgins have come good again, um, despite not having great seasons. Jack Jones has shown a lot of metal. Siege are we. You know, you, the, what you need at the Crucible, obviously you need to be able to play snooker. They all can. But what you need is a bit of metal upstairs. You need a bit of mental strength. Anthony McGill is a good example of that. You know, there's certain players who are going to do well at this tournament, and there are certain players who are not. And that's just, it's nothing to do with snooker. It's to do with, actually, their makeup, I think. Um... So anyway, it's going to be a fascinating last week um, and, yeah, looking forward to the rest of it. And uh, it's worth saying on the podcast, I had uh, Phil, Alan and Neil on and Phil, Luca Brussel was his outsider. He's still going. Um, I think Alan went for Anthony McGill. He's still going. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a bit of uh, 
a bit of sort of expertise there, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks for listening and enjoy the last week of the tournament. Let's hope it passes without. We haven't even mentioned O'Sullivan to save a fire. I didn't have a single email about that, by the way. Um, I think most people can agree that Hussein <laughs> kind of put too much pressure on himself and, you know, smashing the pack it was crazy, really. I mean, you know, anyway, I think uh, it ended nicely. I think Ronnie behaved very well throughout the whole thing. He said the right things. He behaved in a good way. And, you know, all friends again, basically. Um, so in a week's time, the world final will be will be basically nearly over. And we will find out who is the world champion. And it's a great thing. Let's hope, as I say, that the so the interest continues and the, the stories continue and we, we get the, the final, the finale that we feel we deserve. Because there's nothing like the world championship. It, 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 it's, you know, we sort of mythologise it all year round. But when it comes round, what you find is <laughs> you're right to. There is nothing like it. It's completely divorced, really, from any other event. Uh, people will say I'm obsessed with the Triple Crown. But I made this point the other day on Twitter there's no equivalence between those three events. That's why the Triple Crown doesn't actually work as a concept because it suggests the three tournaments, you know, you know, Player X has won this amount of Triple Crown events. It suggests they're all on the same level. They're not. The World Championship clearly is miles in front of everything else. It just is. And we're finding out why because these multi-session matches are a, a, a real test of a player's mettle. Uh, anyway, lecture over. Uh, as I say, we've been going for an hour, so we need to stop now. But thank you for your correspondence. You can contact me at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, and although I encourage emails, what I will say is this, there's only been one more edition until we take a break. So um, unless it's an absolutely burning issue, then maybe maybe save them for the summer. Uh, we'll take anything on the, any more banal meetings with snooker players. Uh, and a new a new feature, so your your twin sister not speaking to a player but nodding at them. I mean, if there's any more on that, then we'll have them. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Um, but that's it. Enjoy the last week of the World Championship. It's going to be great, I'm sure. And as ever, may the best man win. But as we always say, until next time, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.